If you, if you have your, your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2. We're actually going to um, conclude Acts chapter 2 today. Um, we are picking up, actually I'm, we're going to kind of overlap just a little bit from where Trent was at last week, um, where we were able to see something really interesting happen in that text, um, where you see Peter stand up um, after, after the disciples and the apostles were, were all in this place, and, and the, the Holy Spirit fell on that place. Um, there were a lot of people who were just blown away by what was happening. And then there were equal amounts of people who said, these, these people are drunk. They're acting crazy. What's going on? Um, and so that prompted Peter, the Apostle Peter, to stand up and just drop gospel truth after gospel truth on top of the crowds who were there. And what we saw in that moment through the proclamation of the gospel, is that there was this diverse crowd of people, and roughly 3,000 of those people put their faith in Jesus based on the, the, the word that was preached and the power of the Spirit that was uh, displayed in that moment. And so there's, there's a lot that could be, be said about that, um, honestly. You know, we, um, we're, we're, we're walking through the book of Acts, and so we want to try, to try to capture everything that we can capture uh, but just understand and, and, and think about for a second these random people that, that, have, that had shown up to this, to this gathering. Random people with their own lives, with their own priorities, uh, diverse people from all walks of life. They have kind of their own issues, their own desires, their own goals. Some of them even have their own gods, right? Um, and, and so this is a diverse crowd of people uh, that's, that's in play here. And they were radically shaped by the words of Peter. Like they, their entire lives were flipped upside down. And what we saw at the end of that, the result was repentance and, and baptized. Like they, they, were, they repented of their sin. They put their faith in Jesus and 3,000 were baptized that day. Now, now at this point, we're shifting now their lives. These 3,000 random people, diverse people, their lives, their desires, their goals are now aligned with the kingdom of God. Like the, what was, when they walked in the room, what their desires were at the beginning weren't what their desires were when they left. The gods that they worshipped, whether that be money, whether that be relationships, whether, whatever that may be, whether it, careers, uh, all those things kind of got pushed to the side and Jesus became their king and their Lord in that moment. And so today, um, what I'm just setting this up because what I want you to see and what's very, very important, I'm telling you, man, what's really been working on my heart this week is what happens when, when that takes place? What happens whenever God comes and invades your space? What happens when God comes into this space and, and pushes our own priorities and agendas and desires to the side? What does it look like? What's the result of that? What's the natural effects of, of what's going on here? And so what happens, what I see when a group of people respond to the gospel, there's, there's obvious, right, repentance and obedience. That's what we saw. Like, that's the natural response to the gospel. Uh, and that's where we, we picked up uh, last week, and, and, and where we ended last week in verse 41. And this morning, here's what I'm doing. Here's what I'm praying for all week. Here's what I've been praying for this morning. That the Holy Spirit of God would come into this place and completely disrupt your business as usual. That he would completely disrupt our business as usual. That he would completely disrupt what we've predicted to happen today. That's what I've been praying for because the question that continues to haunt me as I look at this book, as I look through Acts and as we prepare to teach it is what are the marks of a healthy church? What defines a healthy, thriving body of believers? And you look in the book of Acts and what haunts me 
is that it seems like there's a massive disconnect between the, the gospel communities that we see in Scripture and the local churches that we see today. There seems to be this massive disconnect. We look at Scripture like, oh man, that's, that's a time and, 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 and space whenever God was doing something and working, doing supernatural things, but it just doesn't look like that anymore. That's the Holy Spirit of God who fell at Pentecost is the same Spirit that lives and, 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 and moves and works in the local church today. And so I'm disrupted by that. I'm disturbed by that, and you should be too. For those of you who align your, your faith and, and your life with Christ, you should be disturbed by that, that it looks so different. Now, I may be in a, alone in this, but it seems like the local churches in our context is, is somewhat of a misrepresentation of what we see in Acts. In our passage today, we're going to get a clear picture going to get a clear view of these normal rhythms that the church is supposed to have. Like the normal steps, the normal activities that the, the early church had and that we are like at a minimum, we're supposed to have these same rhythms at a minimum is what I believe here. And so we're going to get a picture of this today, what, what this local body, what Sulphur Community Church could be and what Sulphur Community Church should be. In this moment. And so if you have your scripture, I'm going to read verse 41 and we're going to read through uh, verse 47 of Acts chapter 2. And so you can follow along. Verse 41, Peter has finished his sermon and here's the result. So those who received his word were baptized and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is, to me, one of the most pivotal passages in all of Scripture. Like, this is where things turn and shift. And, 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 and I love what we're going to see here today. What happens when the gospel is actually preached? What actually happens when the Spirit actually falls? Like, what goes on in those moments? I'll tell you what doesn't happen. What we didn't see in Scripture is that the apostles stood up and start handing out the rule cards. Okay, guys, you saved. Here's the things you're supposed to do. Here's the, the, all the, uh, the rules you're supposed to obey. Here's all the things that you were supposed to accomplish, right? That's not what they did. They didn't hand out their club expectations in that moment. And I want to set before you, Acts chapter 2, the true marks of a group of people who've surrendered everything, who've surrendered everything to Jesus and they've committed their lives to him. What does that look like? What does it look like whenever we say you need to surrender all to Jesus? Well, then what does that look like for us? And there's not a better place in scripture than we can go than right where we're at. And I would even go so far to say that my prayer for SCC, for this church, that, that we would begin to emulate exactly what we see here. This is not a metaphor. This is not some example that we got to kind of translate it into the 21st century. I pray that we emulate exactly what's happening in these passages this morning. And one thing 
uh, that seems to be completely missing in this Acts chapter 2 New Testament church is what we see in so many churches today. The thing that I see missing in this early church is this me-centered mentality, this serve-me mentality. That's what's missing in this, in this church. Like you, you very well may be one who's come through the doors today looking for how we can serve you. What do we have for you here today? What do we have for you in this place? And I'm going to tell you something. That's okay with us. That's okay with me. That's okay with our leadership that you've come in here to receive. Because here's the deal. Every one of us desperately need to receive from Jesus. And so I'm glad you're here today. And I'm glad you've come with that mindset that's okay with us. We've made it our highest priority. You can, tell, you can talk to any person on our, on, our, on our leadership team, our pastors. The, the, the thing that we've been keeping in front of us is that our desire is to move people from consumers to missionaries. And we do that through the, the, the process of gospel-centered discipleship. So that's our goal. So we know if you've come into this place and you're like, what do you have for me? What do you have for my kids? That's a me-centered mentality. And I understand that's our context. But, but through gospel-centered discipleship, our prayer is that we work that out of you. Because we don't see that in the new church. We don't see that in Acts chapter 2. We don't see that in the early church. So if this is you, I'm glad you're here. And as you find your place in this community, as you find your, your footing in this community, I just want to caution you that we're not okay with you staying that way. We're not okay with that. Neither is Jesus. Neither is the brothers and sisters who are sitting beside you. Neither is the people that you work with. Neither is the people that go, you go to school with. And so we can all agree that the early church didn't have everything together. You're going to get a, we're going to get a few chapters later, and, and some of the believers are actually going to God's going to strike them down because they were lying, they were, they were stealing, they were being deceitful. You're going to go a little bit further down the road and you're going to see that even the apostle Peter himself still has racist tendencies that the apostle Paul is going to have to call out and say, hey man, it's, it's no longer like that, man. Christ died for that and you can't be that way. And so the church, uh, it, it has its issues, but, but these are the distinct marks of the early church and the areas that we need to move toward and not away from. And that's where I want to show uh, today, like, what does a thriving community of believers devote themselves to? What am I asking you as brothers and sisters in Christ to devote yourself to? And the first thing we see, look at, look at the first part of verse 42. It says, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. So like, a thriving community of believers devote themselves to the gospel. Number one, mainly the gospel. That's what they've devoted themselves to. If you want to know what the apostles taught, um, if you're one of those who, who takes notes and writes things down, you want to write this one down. Do you, I'm going to tell you how to find out what the apostles taught. Go read the entire New Testament. That's what the apostles taught. Everything in the New Testament. And as you do, what you're going to quickly learn is that these guys are completely obsessed with the person and the work of Jesus. They cannot stop talking about Jesus. He was the center of their affections. He was the center of all of their desires. He was everything that these guys wanted to be about. He was everything that, that they, all of their writings come from. That's what we see in, in the New Testament. They couldn't stop worshiping Jesus as their Lord and their king. They couldn't stop worshiping Jesus as the Son of God. 
They couldn't stop it. They couldn't get over it. They couldn't stop witnessing and telling people about his life and his death and his resurrection. It was just, they were consumed with it. They were all about this movement that Jesus continued to to, to put before them. And when he left, they made their whole life about going to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them everything that Jesus had commanded. They were completely obsessed with this. Completely. And you just read the New Testament. You'll see that. I love the Apostle Paul's writings because... Every single, single letter that he wrote was just saturated with the gospel. In fact, like the first half of most of all of his letters, like the first half of it, is him breaking down the gospel once again because he didn't want to assume that you get it. He said, no, no, I need to remind you of the gospel because we're quick to run away from that. Man, we're quick to try to do things in our own power and in our own might and with our own money and with our own influence. He's like, that all got washed away in Christ. And so I need, for you to, I need for you to remember this. He doesn't want us to assume that we get it. And so when we say gospel, that good news, like when I, we use that term here, we're talking about the life, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. That's what we're, we're talking about, that, that he came for broken sinners. And if I were to poll the room today and ask you, would you consider yourself a broken sinner? All of us would be required to raise our hands. We all fit that bill. And so Jesus came and he gave his life on a cross for broken sinners. And living the life that God expected us to live, we obviously couldn't pull it off. Jesus came to accomplish that for you too. That's why he came. And in addition to that, Jesus took our punishment. But because of our rebellion because of our running away from God and because of us not being able to meet the expectation that God set on us, Jesus came and he accomplished. He took that punishment for us. Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, for, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. For our sake... God sent his son Christ. The one who knew no sin, he came for broken sinners. And he owned the sin. He became the sin. He just didn't die for the sin. It says he became the sin. Jesus became the liar that I am. He became the liar that I am. He embraced the addictions that I have. He took them as his his own. He claimed my lustful thoughts as his own. And he took on the guilt of my pride. He took on the guilt of my self-righteousness. He took on the guilt of my apathy. He took on the guilt of my passivity. He, he became those things. And so whatever it is for you, whatever that thing is for you, whatever's got you hung up, whatever's got you far from God, whatever's got you running from God right now, Christ came for that. And he became that sin And he put himself on a cross, washing that sin away. And now you're free and you're whole in in, in his death and his resurrection. And all all you do is believe. Believe that he's accomplished these things. After three days, he would raise himself from the tomb. Literally rose to life, fully earning the right of the seat that he now sits in accomplishing 
everything that his father sent him to do. And so that's what we mean when we use the word gospel. That's what we're talking about. And I hope that in, in all of those things, what you didn't hear me say is what you have to do, other than just embrace what Christ has done. It's all about what he's accomplished. And so we see this throughout the New Testament. And it's like a clear explanation of the gospel, like what Jesus has done for you and how we are to live in light of that reality. That's what the New Testament is about. Here's what Christ has done for you, and here's how you live in that reality. And the early church was marked by their devotion to the scriptures, to the apostles' teachings, which is the gospel. And so this doesn't mean, listen, this doesn't mean that they just loved to hear the gospel, right? They did, that, that's not what that means, that they just didn't love to read the gospels, read the word, like that's not exactly what's going on there. The early church wasn't sitting around having Bible drills. The early church wasn't, they weren't setting up Bible memorization contests. That's not what, when they're devoted to the apostles' teaching, when they're devoted to the gospel, devoting themselves meant they obeyed the word. That's what it meant. When they devoted themselves to it, they obeyed, they heard, they received, they embraced, and they walked in that reality. They loved to apply the word to their lives. That's what devotion to the apostles' teaching means. And so this is what a thriving community of believers looks like. First and foremost, that they're devoted to the gospel. But then you see also, look at the, look at the, the verse 42 again. They've devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. So yes, they're devoted to the gospel, but they're also devoted to confession and repentance. That's also what they're devoted to. Under, look, understandably, many people are going to look at that verse and they're going to they're think that, you know, that means they're eating meals together. But I don't think that's accurate since Luke here in just a few more verses, he's going to actually refer to them eating food together. So I, I believe this part of verse 42 is dealing with communion. It's dealing with the Lord's table. It's dealing with the Lord's supper. Like when they came together, they celebrated communion. They were devoted to that, that symbol that has been given to us as a reminder of Jesus' body being broken for us. And also with it, the cup that he consumed the cup of wrath, his blood poured out for us, that symbol that we, we have in the cup of the Lord. So I believe he's referring there to the Lord's Supper. And one of the key aspects of community, uh, communion, if, if you've ever been a part of our gatherings, when we've done communion, you know that we've, we put a strong emphasis on that, of confession and repentance as we receive the Lord's Supper, as we receive communion together. Like That is a big deal to us. That is a big deal to the early church. It's a big deal to Jesus. That we don't just flippantly get up and take communion as if it's just some religious activity. But we need to stop for a minute. We need to think about what's going on, what, what's happening in this moment, and how am I supposed to react to this? And so it's equally important for us to reflect on this reality that in Christ we have been forgiven. And that comes through confession and repentance to remember that God has forgiven us. And I'm going to tell you what, that's probably been some of the most transformational times in the life of this church is that when we really slow down for a second before we take communion and consider the gravity, the weight of that moment, that it absolutely has a, 
has a place for confession and repentance as we take the Lord's Supper, as we celebrate communion together. And so I'll tell you this, I think one of the things that, that drives me personally to make sure it stays a big deal is because confession isn't something that I was taught as a regular thing in my walk with Christ. Um, like, I don't know if it's wide, widely taught in a lot of places. And here's what I mean by that. Like, I would go so far to say that um, churches may indirectly be teaching people to put the mask on when they come in the door. Right? And if anything, this is the place where the mask comes off. If there's any other place in the world that I don't have to come and fool anyone or to try to be someone that I'm not or to try to dress up and make you think that I'm sinless, it's not here. Like, this is the place where we all agree. We all agree that we're sinners. And, and our only hope is in Jesus. And so this is the safest place or should be the safest place in the world where the mask can come off. And so that's why it's very important for us as we get ready to celebrate communion together that, that we, we stop for a minute and say, hey, is there anything in your life right now that needs to be confessed, that needs to be confessed to God, that you need to confess to others. Is there anything, is there any way you're walking that might require you to repent? That you walk through some repentance right now because that's, that's, that's so necessary. That's so necessary for the unity of the body. And the only way you and I can get to this place of honesty and vulnerability. So if you come in here today, I want to try to help you. Like if you come in here and you put the mask on, you're like, yeah, I'm Mr. Perfect or I'm Mrs. Perfect. And, and this is, we're going to play the game. I, 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 want to, I want to share with you that the only place that you can get to uh, where you can take that mask off, where you can be honest, where you can be vulnerable, is to believe that Jesus gave his life for your sin. That's the only way that you're going to get there. To believe that Jesus has paid for every sin has paid for every sin. And, 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 and here's what I mean. Like on the cross, Jesus just, he didn't just die for some of your sin. He didn't just die for most of your sin. On the cross, he took all of your sin. This means that I'm forgiven. This means that I am justified and I now live in this freedom where it's safe to confess my sin. It's safe for me to express to you my weaknesses. So I don't want to play a a game like I don't want to play a church game a religious game and we shouldn't be trying to play that game here there should be a place where we can openly confess and ask brothers and sisters to walk with us in the kindness of God that leads us to repentance at the cross Jesus has outed my sin and he's outed your sin and that's where he dealt with it at the cross and so this was the daily devotion of the early church this was a mark of freedom to confess and to repent. This was, this was just a natural effect of hearing the gospel preached and a diverse crowd of people being gathered as a church. This was just normative practices to, to devote themselves to the gospel, meaning to, to embrace it and to apply it to every single day of their life and then confess, confession and repentance become a natural rhythm in the place where it was most safe to share. Another thing we see, look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's the gospel, and the fellowship to the breaking of bread, communion together, confession, repentance, and the prayers. And the prayers. That sounds pretty basic. 
And it sounds pretty obvious. And I'm going to tell you what, some of you in the room already know this. This is the thing that burdens me the most this week. This one right here. Not that they prayed to transition from one part of our service to the next. Not that they prayed as a way to conclude our service or to start our service. Not, not that they devoted themselves to praying a blessing over the meal. But they embraced prayer together. That they, they leaned in, they gave all of their life to this. This was, this was something that was a mark on their everyday life. This, this holy moment of communicating with God. This holy moment of God communicating with us. And I'm not sure if you realize this or not, but you actually can pray away from the dinner table. That's a thing. You can, you can actually do that. In fact, when observed with intentionality, when, when, when really kind of going after prayer, that's the space where God is allowed to shape us most. It's the space where he gets unrestricted access to my heart. That's where prayer, that's what happens with prayer, where I confess my failures, where I confess my weaknesses, where I confess my, my sins. It's the place where he shows me kindness that will lead to repentance. It's, it's the place where I'm reminded what the gospel has accomplished on my behalf. God, I so need to hear that every time I go to the Lord in prayer because I feel like I'm going just a broken mess and I need God to remind me of the good news. I need him to remind me of what he's accomplished in Christ. It is the place where I go to align all of my priorities with God's priorities. That's the place I go, and that's where the place where I go to beg for His kingdom to come to earth as it is in heaven. That was what happens in prayer. That's what takes place when we pray. But it was so special. Like what was, what was really unique about this early church, the mark of prayer for this early church, is not just individuals spending private time in prayer. Like, we see this devoted community of believers, like as they would come together, they would corporately pray. They would get together and they would pray and they would chase after God with passion. And all the things that I said, like they would create a space for God to do something in the heart and in the life of that, that community of believers. The church was actually coming together. They were actually linking their hearts together in community and in prayer. When's the last time you saw a brother or sister? actively gather a group of people say hey would you come over to my place tonight a few of us are getting together man and we're just gonna we're gonna spend time praying we're gonna spend time asking the lord to do something like when's the last time that invitation has been extended to you when's the last time you've even seen anything remotely like that when's the last time you've articulated something specific to someone a specific need a specific burden you had When's the last time someone's come to you and articulated a specific burden, a specific need, and, and your response was, well, you know what, I'll, I'll pray about that. Instead of just saying, you know what, we're going to pray about this. We're going to chase after God. We're going to ask God to do something immeasurably more than whatever this situation would be. When's the last time that's happened? When's the last time you've seen anyone in this room get together and chase after God in prayer? That was, that was an obvious natural response to, for the early church in light of the gospel. And that's why, the, that's why this one has been chasing me down this week. Because he, here's the deal. It starts with me. It starts with me. 
and, and I shoulder some of the responsibility for why it's not happening in this group. I can't expect for anyone in here to do what I'm not willing to do. So prayer was this distinct mark of the early church. And I believe the overarching factor for why they saw so much fruitful gospel multiplication is because they were a people of prayer. That's why they saw such mighty moves of God because they were a people of prayer. And many, many of you in the room have probably heard the, the name Charles Spurgeon. But for, for those of you who may have not heard of this guy, he was one of the most influential voices in the church beginning in the 19th century and even into uh, today. He pastored Metropolitan Tabernacle in London, which was at the time like the largest church gathering in the world. Um, and so he was known throughout the world as the, like this great preacher um, and, and had huge influence across the globe. And so people would come from all over. They would travel from all over the place to the Metropolitan Tabernacle to hear the great Spurgeon preach a sermon. Um, and so he would do, what he would do is he would carve out some time as, you know, I think he was preaching like uh, 15 or 16 times a week or something like that. Uh, and he would carve out some time when visitors would come to see him um, or come to hear him preach to show them around the facilities. And his favorite place to take them was down into the basement of the church, of this, uh, of this church building. And, and the reason he loved doing that was because any time of the day, any time of the night, any time of the week, there were a crowd of people down there passionately praying for God to move. It didn't matter what time of day or night it was, and he would take them down there, and that was like his prize. He said, hey, visitors, you want to know what's going on around here? You want to know what makes everything great? He would refer to that as the powerhouse of their church. He said, this is the engine room right here. This is, this is, this is why everything happens the way it happens. And he said this, if the engine room is out of action, then the whole mill will grind to a halt. We cannot expect blessing if we do not ask. Why should we expect God to move or to do anything if we're not willing to ask? Why should we expect revival to take place in the hearts of our church family if we're not willing to ask God to bring about revival? Why should we expect people to turn to Jesus? Why should we expect people to put their faith in Jesus if we're not willing to ask him for it? Why should we expect God himself to be made much of in our neighborhoods and the nations if we're not willing to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name? How can we expect any move of God to take place if we're not even willing to ask God? And the, the early church, they went after this. That this, was, this was what they were consumed with. It was a natural response to the gospel. It was a natural response for a community of believers who followed Jesus to do these things. Verse 43, And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. This thriving community of believers was devoted to exercising their spiritual gifts. When I say devoted, I'm talking about they've given their life to this, to exercising their spiritual gifts. The, the activity of the early church was this supernatural activity. Like, it was something that was going on that the, the whole community around them were like, that can only be God. 
Like, I don't know. There's no other way to explain it apart from God. So what was taking place within the early church wasn't based on their own personal uh, talents. It wasn't based on their own abilities. The, the traction and the movement of the early church wasn't a result of hard work and, and strong effort and, and dedication. Uh, the activity of the early church was a mark of the power of the Holy Spirit. The activity that flowed out, the horsepower that flew, flew out of the church, out of the early church, was it, it, was, it came from exercising spiritual gifts. It was, it was supernatural abilities. They lived in this rhythm of walking in their spiritual gifts. It's one of the things, if you've sat in our new members class, it's one of the things that we kind of talk about a good deal. It's like, hey, we need to know, you need to know, you need to explore and experience what your spiritual gifts are. Gifts are. Otherwise, you can't contribute here. There's nothing for you to bring to the table. We don't want your, we don't want your talents. Because those, only, those, are, those don't hold anything. We want God's supernatural ability to work through you to serve the body. And that's the goal of the gifts. The goal of the gifts is to be the body of Christ, to serve the body, and to glorify Him in those gifts. That's the whole point of them. And so in our passage this morning, we see that this was specifically taking place with the apostles in this moment, exercising their gifts. But as you move through the whole entire New Testament, you'll see these average ordinary believers in Jesus displaying these supernatural abilities that were given to them by God. And so you see the entire church, and what's so beautiful that everyone, everyone who belongs to the body of Christ are participating in these gifts. They all come, like God has equipped each one of those who belong to Christ with certain specific special gifts to serve the body. And so it's not only up to the pastors, it's not only up to the elders and the leaders of this church to exercise the gifts of preaching, to exercise the gifts of teaching and leadership. But every believer is a minister of the gospel in the body of Christ. Every single believer is a minister of Jesus. And that's what we saw in the early church. And so I want to be a part of that. Like I want to be a part of something that like when it happens, when it happens, there's no explanation for it. Like people look around and they can either say we're drunk uh, we have no, like it, we're out of our minds or that God is doing something supernatural. That's, the, that's what I want to be a part of. Be a part of something that the Holy, the Holy Spirit is doing. And so a thriving community of believers devote themselves to exercising their gifts. And look at verse 44. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. So let me share something very important and very beautiful that's going on in verse 44. All things in common. Now what this doesn't mean is that they all had the same taste. And it doesn't mean that they had the same interests. It doesn't mean that they had the same hobbies. It doesn't mean that they all preferred the same worship experience. It doesn't mean that they all preferred the same creative style. It doesn't mean that they, uh, they all had the same cultural uh, desires of cultural experiences. Um, it doesn't mean that they all homeschooled or private schooled or public schooled. It doesn't mean that they were all Republican. It doesn't mean that they were all Democrat or independent or libertarian. It doesn't mean that what this means is while there is this massive diversity in the body, as there should be, as there should be, no one claimed exclusive ownership over their possessions. No one in the room said, that's mine. No one in the room said, that's yours. 
That's, that's what that means when they say all things in common. They had all things in common, which means I have something, but it doesn't belong to me. It belongs to the church. That's, that's what's going on in the New Testament church here. And if you have something, it's not yours. If you belong to the body of the Christ, we have all things in common. All things. There's no such thing as mine and yours anymore. But there's ours. And the church can only be marked this way if they understand clearly what Jesus has accomplished. If this is kind of raking you kind of the wrong way, like, hey, I don't know about that, Blake. You're just trying to say, like, it's, what's mine is everybody's here. If, if you have some some heartburn about that, then you don't fully understand what Jesus has accomplished. You don't fully grasp and embrace what Jesus has accomplished. That he sacrificially gave his life to bring us in community with the Father. When a, sh- when a, when a church, when a, when a community of believers, when they're shaped around this gospel-centered reality, sacrificial fellowship will be the natural overflow. Like, that's just what's not, that's the natural reaction. And, and as I'm thinking through this and as I'm putting this stuff down and, and, and you know, just asking God to, like, what, what does this need to look like? It's like, man, what if we actually took that seriously? Like, really? Like, what if we actually, I don't think we take it serious. I don't think we believe it. But what if we did? What would happen if we really did? If someone in our church community had a need, like if someone had a need, and if we weren't physically able to meet it, that we'd be like, um, okay, well, I got a car. Let me go sell this car and, and make sure that this need is met. That's what's going on in the early church. That's what's, that's what's happening in this moment. Like what would happen if we joyfully just started doing whatever we could do to make sure there was no needs? None. We'd first have to get to a place where it was safe to say, I have a need, Right? We haven't even gotten there yet. We haven't even gotten there yet. So what the Bible teaches us, and it, let, me, let me say one thing. I say joyfully because I don't want you to think I'm standing up here teaching some kind of Christian communism or Christian socialism, right? It, it, what, what the Bible teaches is gospel-driven generosity. That's what the Bible teaches, where we gladly give because we've been liberated from the yoke of selfishness and that we've been, we've been liberated and delivered from this me and mine mentality and that's mine and that's my space and that's my stuff and you can't touch it. That's the kind of stuff we try to teach out of our kids, right? Until they get a little older and we're like, no, 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 that's yours. You earned it, man. They need to earn theirs. The gospel teaches us and empowers us to hold all of our possessions with an open hand. Everything we have is available to the church community as the need presents itself. That's the kind of attitude that the early church had. That's a mark of the early church. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This community of believers was completely devoted to worship. Completely devoted to worship. If I had to take you to one place in Scripture to define worship, I would take you to Acts chapter 2, verse 46. That's worship. What we see happening in the early church, there are two major things that we, we will see in the book of Acts. We see that the church is gathering together in community, that they're gathering corporately together, but then we see the church scattering on mission. That's the two things that we, major things that we see in the life of the church. And it's so important to hold these two 
facets uh, up high, lest we believe that worship is all about getting together and singing a few songs together. It's really important to, to understand and know that the primary things that we see happening in the New Testament church are that they, they gather together in community and they scatter on mission. And while I'll tell you, like, I've watched our, our worship team just continue to grow and to strive and devote themselves to lead this church well and to point this church to, to Jesus through their songs, through the way they serve. That's one of the, my most anticipated moments of our Sunday gatherings, if I could be honest with you, is, is, is to be able to sing and be able to, to shout um, uh, songs of praise. But I'm, gonna hear, I'm here to tell you that worship is so much bigger than that. It's so much bigger than that. It's so much more to it. There's so much more depth. There's so much more beauty to worship than just coming here and singing a couple of songs. It's also hearing the gospel preached, Right? That's worship. Having our hearts celebrate in response to what we hear, this good news that, that we hear. Worship is how I respond when I eat food. The way that I work at my job is worship. If I'm giving my absolute best, if I'm striving for excellence, as if I'm working unto the Lord because the reality is He is the boss. He is. That's worship. Worship is how we gather with our friends in meaningful and genuine fellowship together. Worship takes place there too. And so the way all of this becomes worship, the way it all happens, the way it becomes worship is that when we realize that, God, we don't deserve any of these good things. We don't deserve any good thing that you've given us. The food that I love so much, the people that I love so much, the, the career that I've given my life to and love so much, these are all good things and, and I would have nothing without you. I don't deserve any of these, but you've given them to me to enjoy. You've given food and drink for me to enjoy, not to abuse, right? But to, but to enjoy, enjoy the goodness that, that you've shown on me. You've given me a great career, God. And so I'm going to use that not to try to build up for myself and to try to make a name for myself, but I want to serve you to the best of my ability with all of my excellence because, God, at the end of the day, I didn't deserve it in the first place, but you're good to me and you've given it to me. That's worship. God in his mercy has poured out these gifts on us. And so we celebrate and we enjoy his grace. Wherever we, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, that's what worship is. And so the early church gathered corporately and they scattered throughout the, the, their week in this rhythm of worship. They would gather together in one another's homes and they would praise God. They would share a meal together and they would praise God about it. They would go and they would work together and labor together and they would praise God about it. So they had this natural rhythm of worship in their life. That's what a thriving community of believers devote themselves to. And in verse 47... The Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. How did that happen? How does, how does that happen? It must have been because they were wearing WWJD bracelets, right? It must have been because they had a little fish on their, their car, right? That, that must be why the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. It must be because they probably had a sign and they were outside picketing somewhere telling some young uh, lost soul how they're condemned to hell. That's probably how they added to their number day by day those who were being saved, right? No, absolutely not. And the apostles didn't create this 
big invite campaign, right? Build up to this big moment. And what I want you guys to do is every one of you to go and invite one lost friend to church next week. And then they're going to come hear us preach, right? You're going to hear Peter come and knock it out of the park next week. So that's all you need to do. Now, here's the deal. I love that we've become a place where you feel safe to bring your lost friends. I love that. Don't stop doing that. Don't stop doing that. But at the same time, from day one, Christianity has been primarily a go-and-tell movement, not a come-and-see movement. We've already talked about that. It's primarily a go-and-tell movement. So the church would gather together, right? They would worship Jesus together. They would confess sin together. They would repent together. They would study the gospel together. They would pray together. And then they would scatter into their communities on mission. They would go into the world. Their, their Monday through Saturday, they had this rhythm about them, this rhythm of telling those who are far from God what God has done to bring them near. Like that's what they were consumed with. That's what their life was about. And God was saving people, and the church was growing by the hundreds, growing by the hundreds every week, and that was the mark of the early church. So if you're someone who aligns yourself with Jesus, and you align, you devote yourself to the church, you have this privilege to be a minister of the gospel. It's a privilege. It's not an obligation. It's not this responsibility that you guys got to carry around. It's a privilege to be a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel is not just a message. I want you to think about this. It's not just a message for you to believe, right? It's, it's, it's all of that, but it's also a message that you go and declare and demonstrate in the world. That's what the gospel is. And it's necessary for you to do this it's necessary for you to be in the lives of people who are far from God. Like if you just kind of have your own little thing with all your church friends and everything, that's not what God intended on your life. That's not what he's called us to. You're to have people in your life who are far from God. I pray that every one of us in the room would be accused the way Jesus was accused, that they're a friend of sinners. That's what I hope for this church. So I hope for you individually, that people would accuse you of being a friend of of sinners. There should be people who are welcomed into your home, who, who, who are welcomed around your dinner table, and who are welcomed into your family who don't believe in Jesus. That should be taking place in your life. That's a natural rhythm of living on mission. That's a natural rhythm of worshiping God. That's a natural overflow of what we're doing here today. When you leave here today, that's the natural overflow. That's a natural reaction to what, the, what happens when the gospel is preached. That's what the early church was all about. Your neighbors that live around you, they should know your name, and you should know their name. And if you don't, shame on you. Go meet your neighbor today. Go learn their name today and tell them your name. Start a relationship with somebody who may be far from God in this moment. That's what we're called to. And this was the normal life of the early church. This is what I pray we emulate exactly. So Christians... Brothers and sisters, I want you to do one thing as we kind of wrap up our time, as we, as we kind of walk through these few verses together. There's, there's one main thing I want you to do. I want you to assess the level of your maturity today. Based on what, what the marks of the early church, what, based on what we see in Acts chapter 2, I want, you to, I want you to assess your maturity today. Because what I'm afraid of, I, I'm afraid that a lot of you think more highly of yourselves than you ought. 
A lot of you think, you know what, I've been a Christian since I was this high, Blake. I've grown up in church. I've grown up knowing Jesus. And so you might think you're actually more mature than you are. And I don't want you to measure your spiritual maturity based on your neighbor, based on any, any guy going to stand up here and scream at you about Jesus. I want you to measure it in light of what you saw in Acts chapter 2 today. Are you devoted to these things that we talked about, like the early church w- was devoted to? Are you devoted to the gospel? Are you devoted to worship? Are you devoted to prayer? Are you devoted to confession and repentance? Are you devoted to mission? Are you devoted to those things? That's how we're going to measure our level of spiritual maturity. So if you're a believer in the room, that's, that's your response today. That's how I want you to respond today. And if you realize that your life doesn't necessarily reflect many of these marks, like if you get to that place, you're looking like, man, I'm terrible at this. I'm not, I'm not doing very well. I must, be, I must be immature, Blake. Then I want to, I want to tell you this one thing. It would be a great day to you, for you to confess that to God. It would be a great day for you to, to confess that to someone in the room that you trust. Because that's what the early church was about. Confession. Like, this is where I'm falling short, Blake. So maybe that step for you is not to try to check off your boxes. Well, I need to run out and pray. I need to run out and go meet my neighbor. I need to run out. No, no, no. You need to just, you need to take a minute and confess that to God. That I'm falling short here and I need the power of the Spirit to work in me to accomplish these things. And maybe you're here and you don't know Jesus. Um, you might have heard of him. You might know a little bit about him, but you wouldn't say that you, like, you love Jesus. Maybe that's you. Maybe you know a few things about Jesus, um, but you couldn't say that you like follow him or you would describe him as the Son of God. Or you may know him and you may be running from him right now. You might be in this place where, you know, I know Christ. My life belongs to Christ, but I'm just kind of that way right now. And none of this reflects who I am. I want to set this before you. We were all meant, every single one of us were meant to be in community with God. Every single one of us were meant for that, and every single one of us have this nature to run and to rebel from God. Like, that's our, that's our nature. And so, like, what you're running from means you're running to something else. Like, you, you're looking to, some, to something else that, 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 to, that fills you, that would satisfy you, that would become your God. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, and I'm going to plead with you, stop, because that's, that's going to leave you empty, and that's going to leave you broken. The good news is this, that Jesus, Jesus has dealt with, with your running, and he's dealt with your rebellion at the cross. It's dealt with. And he loves you, and he has opened up the way to bring you back into this community with him, back into the community with others through Christ Jesus. And so today, my invitation for you is just to stop running. Like, stop running and embrace Jesus. Would you pray with me?